There's a lot of things in this old world That just do not make sense Like why there's so few believers on the firing line While so many others sit the fence But if you want to know where the word of God stands And believe it wants to use your feet and hands It's time to take your faith out of the seats And into the streets And come along with me If you'll only look Then you will see On WCN-TV Hi, everybody, and welcome to WCN-TV for today. This is Tuesday, March 8th, 2022. And I just learned something for the very first time here. I can turn my volume on my earphones up and down on my microphone. I've been struggling with that for three months. Anyway, I just learned it. <laughs> so, welcome. Anyway, two years ago, our world changed forever. I remember it well because it was our annual uh, ministry expo and conference that we used to hold every year for more than 20 years uh, for Wisconsin Christian News. And um, that was the weekend when the state of emergency was declared for the deadly COVID-19. I'm pretty sure that our conference was the last one, uh, the last live event of that entire year. As we went into the two weeks to flatten the curve, I began researching all that was happening And since then, so much has come to light that we now know COVID and the drastic measures our government and health officials took and continue to take involves much more than they'd have us believe. They do not have our best interest in mind, and our health has nothing to do with any of the protocols and mandates that they've put in place. We've covered all these things, including the planning session the world elites held, which they called Event 201, and interestingly, Things played out just as they had planned at Event 201. We also covered the mass mandates, the jab mandates, and the people behind the scenes who are putting profit over people's health in our hospital systems. We've also covered the ultimate plan of the Great Reset, the globalist plan for a new world order, and how COVID has been used to facilitate that. Things are still unfolding as the elites are in this to win this, and we know that we are really no more than numbers to them. Only useful as long as we're compliant, remain obedient, ignorant, and fearful. But many, many people are not remaining ignorant. As alternative media and so many others are spilling the beans now regarding all that's behind the pandemic of COVID-19. It should strike us all as odd that through all of this, the topic of natural health supplements to get healthy and remain healthy with healthy immune systems has only been mentioned when our health officials want to ridicule the idea. 
And it's obvious, as big tech has censored all information that goes contrary to the official narrative, that real science and real truth has been outlawed for a while now. Those who dare speak the truth about the things we're going to be talking about today are ridiculed and marginalized. But as I've said before, I'm here to tell you the truth and to present information from experts who know a lot more about this stuff than I do. Today's guest is Dr. Gordon Donaldson, joining us live from Pennsylvania. Dr. Donaldson grew up as a missionary kid along the Amazon River. He's board certified in family practice, and he's been in solo private practice for 31 years. He specializes in mitigating cardiovascular inflammation, and that's had a great impact in his ability to successfully treat COVID using early treatment with repurposed drugs and working aggressively to keep people out of the hospitals by treating them at home. So today we're going to be talking about the illness, prevention, and treatment of COVID, as well as understanding the jab. We'll also get into the topic of what you should do if you've already taken the jab and you've been injured by it. So there is hope. He is serious about the Hippocratic Oath he took, which is, first, do no harm. Dr. Donaldson, thank you, and welcome to WCN-TV. Thanks for joining us. Well, Rob, it's certainly my pleasure. And with the audience out there, uh, it's just an honor for me to be part of this whole thing and being part of sharing the truth about this very important topic. Well, I, I first found you because you were one of the speakers at Pastor Matt Truella's event uh, a few months ago in Milwaukee, and you did an excellent presentation. You can find that at uh, County Before Country. I think it's dot com dot org dot org County Before Country dot org. You can find Dr. Donaldson's uh, speech there, um, and I think you'll find it very informative. So, um, but let's let's start off. Uh, um, tell us a little bit about your experience in treating people with COVID. Um, I know it's quite different from the typical treatments the government and health officials recommend. So how did you get involved um, in treating patients with COVID? Well, it, was, it started very early on, as you mentioned, whenever the shutdown began. And I could actually see it coming. At that point in time, I was starting to look into things. And it, just to look back at, at my background, to kind of make it a little bit interesting, uh, I was putting together writing a what I would consider a white paper on COVID-19 from a different medical perspective. And I use the analogy, and I will uh, quickly go through that, the analogy of, of the chameleon. I grew up in Peru. And so the chameleon was an animal that you didn't, you stayed in front of it because you didn't fear the bite but boy, you better fear the tail whip. And so it was just as I was going through this and I was looking at it, I, I was here on the front lines. I was seeing was, what was coming down the pike. And even at that time, seeing through a lot of the uh, things that were being proposed out there. Uh, and I said, you know what? The bite is not what is bad here. It's the fallout and the tail whip that is going to be bad. 
And that is exactly how this has been playing out all along over these two years. And it's still continuing to play out and will continue to play out, especially with our children uh, for an entire generation. And so I was on the front lines. And it's like I had patients in front of me. It's like a battlefield. You have patients in front of you who are ill. And I would see, see them. They would go to the hospital and then they would die. And so for me, it was something that was frustrating uh, because normally uh, our hospitals should be considered the places to go to get the best treatment. If I couldn't handle something out here on the front lines, I knew that I could send them to the hospital and they would get better treatment. But that very quickly we found out was not the case. And so um, it's like it was like being on a battlefield. So how can I mitigate that here on the front lines? And very early on, we knew very early on with Dr. Zenzelenko and, and the treatment with hydroxychloroquine uh, and then ivermectin that we could keep these people out of the hospital and by doing that be very successful. And even now, I praise the Lord for for uh, mine. I we have over I have over eight hundred patients that I've uh, treated over these two years, and as of yet, have not lost one as far as to death. So uh, that's really where we had to go. And again, first do no harm. But how can we use safe things that are effective that we can go after these uh, this illness? and still come out with a very successful outcome. Well, let's let's kind of start by forming a foundation here. Let's tell the people um, about the COVID illness itself. What What is it that makes this coronavirus so much more serious or different than others like the common cold? The thing that, we, that must be understood very early is, number one, you have two entities going on here. You have the SARS-CoV-2, which is the virus, and then you have COVID-19, which is the illness. It is very important to delineate between the two. Why is that important? We will see it as we go forward with the whole thing with the jab. But the difference is that the SARS-CoV-2 virus is the coronavirus. That is the common cold virus. But it has one thing that is very important, and now we know um, just recently, Moderna has come out and said that, yeah, this came out of a lab and it was manufactured. And that is the spike protein. That spike protein on the virus is what is deadly. Uh, the Salk Institute out in California did a very nice study where they basically took and took the spike protein off of the virus, injected that into um, animals, and they were able to reproduce the illness with only the spike protein. So basically the coronavirus became the vehicle to get the spike protein into the body. And from there, that is what was really damaging. And so the spike protein, basically we have a system in our body. It's the uh, angiotensin converting enzyme system, the A system. There are two components to it, an inflammatory component and an anti-inflammatory component. So what they use with the spike protein, it would go in and it would bind the anti-inflammatory component of our body's ACE system and basically allow the, the ACE, uh, the inflammatory component of our ACE system to just fire up. And that's what caused the major uh, 
problems with all the organ systems and specifically with the lungs because the ACE system is very high in the, in the lung tissue. So that's why really the lung tissue became uh, a very uh, hot area where the inflammation occurred. So this is uh, what you're saying. What I'm, what I'm getting from this is that this is uh, a manufactured we now know, uh, yes, with, with Moderna coming out. So what they basically took, they look at the sequence, and this has just come out over the past week, um, how they were a- actually able to show that Moderna had patented the uh, uh, spike protein before it was ever out on the, out, as we say, out on the market, so to speak. Okay. Yep. That's kind of what we assumed all along here from all the information we've gotten from alternative sources. But um, let, let's move on here. What are the early symptoms uh, that people should look for if they suspect they may have COVID um, that they should be aware of? And and then what, what should you do right away if you think you might have it? Number one, the key, I can't emphasize it enough, is always early treatment. We would like to get patients treated within the first three to four days if we're going to treat with medicine. But what we know, and and, uh, uh, Dr. Peter McCullough and and those, if we suspect anything at all, actually just getting the the, um, nasal saline, uh, some povidone iodine, uh, rinses, peroxide, xylitol, nose spray, because the virus reproduces in the oral pharyngeal and the nasal area for approximately three days before it goes systemic. So just using that alone, if it's gotten early, but therein lies the, the problem because early on, the symptoms just look like a cold. And those of us, it's like, what are we used to? Oh, well, give it three or four days before you decide whether it's going to get any worse. Well, therein lies the problem because, again, the illness itself is you get the fever, chills, congestion, headaches, sore throat, malaise, cough. Um, And so it's, okay, well, it's just a common cold and I'm just going to ride it out and I'm going to ride it out another day. But then what happens, especially with the older versions, the Delta, the Gamma and the early versions, was that you hit day 10 or 11 and then that's when the crash occurred, when it went really systemic and started to replicate that's when people went downhill and they would go downhill very quickly and they would uh, desaturate with their oxygen levels because the lungs couldn't keep up because of the inflammation. And what we know about this illness specifically is um, a big word. This is a cardiovascular thromboembolic type of an illness. In other words, it causes inflammation and it causes many blood clots and that's really a big part of a lot of this that we see with the, the lung function. It's actually many blood clots. It is not an infection or a pneumonia as such. And so that's why when they look at it, you know, you kind of see this whole area that's just um, not oxygenating well and it's uh, patchy and hazy in the lungs because that's really what is happening uh, with it. Well, we know that the uh, the jabs are notorious for increasing uh, blood clots, but you're saying that the uh, the virus itself causes blood clots. 
That is correct. And so then to go to the second part of your question, well, what what should you do? Well, that's when, uh, again, early treatment, and that's when we immediately jump on the repurposed drugs. Uh, very successful. They are very safe. Again, for myself, growing up along the Amazon River, I had been on all of those uh, medicines at some point in time in my life because, again, we were near a malaria endemic area, so hydroxychloroquine. We would take hydroxychloroquine occasionally if we would travel to those areas. Um, uh, again, we grew up, I grew up in villages along the river, so we would do a, a purge every so often. And so ivermectin was part of that as well, uh, along with some of the other uh, antiparasitics. But that was commonplace for us. And so I had already been through it and had taken uh, these medicines at some point in time in, in my past life, uh, but also just around the world. These are very safe. They've been around for decades and have saved billions of lives. There have been billions of doses given, uh, especially with the ivermectin. Uh, one of the things that bothers me, obviously, with that is, oh, well, that's a horse parasitic. And um, just to if uh, those out there who may not understand it, that was a Nobel Prize winning drug uh, intended and developed to treat uh, parasites to prevent river blindness. Uh, and so they, it saved a lot of lives. And so uh, it was not, it is a human medicine given to horses, not horse medicine given to humans. And it was actually banned, wasn't it? Um... I mean, the, the, there were doctors that wanted to pre prescribe it, but they couldn't get the prescriptions to be filled even by pharmacists because pharmacists were, were forbidden to do it. Yeah, and there again, it's not so much that, again, it became more of a political type thing in that sense because it's not that the pharmacists were forbidden. You know, I would go and talk to pharmacists or I would talk to them on the phone and I'd say, well, why won't you prescribe it? Well, it's because the FDA doesn't approve of it for um, the treatment of COVID. Well, unfortunately, that doesn't float. It doesn't hold a lot of water because pharmacists actually dispense 30% of all prescriptions are for non-indicated purposes, which again, this is just a repurposed drug, drug for not a specifically indicated purpose, but it is perfectly safe to be given and is actually safer than uh, a lot of other medications that are given out there that they would that they would dispense um, without a hesitation at all. So it, it was kind of like uh, a ploy where they become the activist in and of themselves. And uh, by doing that, uh, then we're kind of playing along with it. And they would get some pressure from upstream, uh, from uh, the company, from the administrators. That's how the hospitals work. You know, it's upstream pressure being put on uh, them and physicians who also wanted to treat it. I have a lot of good physicians who are employed, but because uh, they would lose their job, if they would prescribe it, they wouldn't. I'm independent, so that's why for me, it was a no-brainer and I, could, I was free to do that. And so very quickly established the pharmacies in my area who would prescribe it, compounding pharmacists uh, who would uh, mail it out. And through that, was able to keep uh, the flow and, and people who needed it got it. 
Well, that's why we love you. You're independent. Um, <laughs> um, there are so many doctors that know better, uh, and yet they're they're putting their their jobs over the the health of their patients. Um, and you're you're right. There were there was a time when CVS Pharmacy for one and Walgreens for another, um, corporate wide had a policy that they they would not dispense ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine um that you you just couldn't get it at those places so you know but going through but going through the beginning in that first year actually they would um so it was as it went along and then they got more pressure that's where it really uh came down that they quit because i personally went and uh wrote a prescription for myself to my local cvs they filled it for me when I went hmm. back to get more. Oh, no, now we don't. And so uh, it, it was a very interesting. And that was after the jab came out, especially that's when they really put um, the, as I would say, uh, the pressure on the pharmacist not to prescribe it. Uh, right. They would come up with different excuses as to why, but none of them hold water. You know, like I'll lose my license. No, that, that absolutely is not true uh for the the uh, pharmacist well for for us both my wife and both my wife and myself have had it um but we we have still always taken uh you know strongs with um keeping our immune systems strong mm-hmm. uh, we take vitamin c uh d3 with k2 we take potassium iodine zinc um Quercetin. Um, there's something else I'm forgetting. Oh, yeah, we do take and, the NAC also. And, so. and acetylcysteine. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, but I mean, if you keep your immune system strong, um, you may still get it, and we still got it, uh, but it, it lasted much shorter time period. So. Yeah, absolutely, and that's that's really the key, and so. To that end, um, being preventative, and that's one of my whole keys with my practice, it's prevention. Um, it, and it's it's uh, wellness over sickness. It's uh, prevention over uh, intervention. And it's taking a proactive approach rather than a reactive approach. The reactive approach is what got people in trouble because it's like, okay, now I'm really sick. So, oh, well, now let me start my supplements. Oh, let me start uh medicine way behind the eight ball at that point mm-hmm. in time and so it really is about prevention and that's where i can't emphasize that enough and that's how i kind of worked through when i was uh working through my protocol for the prevention and treatment of it is i call them uh there you can see at the top uh, what's up the the uh, big five or super six whichever one you want to call it but your uh vitamin d vitamin C, and the zinc, quercetin, NAC, and melatonin. Melatonin, a lot of people say, well, I don't have a problem sleeping. That is not the reason for melatonin. The reason for melatonin is actually melatonin is a very uh, potent cardiovascular anti-inflammatory. And so it's a stabilizer to the cardiovascular system. Hmm. Yeah, I had not been taking the melatonin, but... um... All the others on the list, I 
I have a stockpile. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let me ask you one more question here. Um, The government has been sending out free COVID test kits. Are those things safe and are they reliable? Well, number one, I don't, I don't trust anything at this point. And this is the sad part of what has happened. See, I like this guy better the Uh, the longer I talk to him. (laughs) (laughs) And I hear it a lot sitting with patients today. It's like, we don't have any trust in the system. Uh, As I was uh, talking and, you know, I mean, we kind of get into it a little bit later, but never in the history of my practice, never in the history of me being in practice, has it ever been a situation where hospitals uh, were actually incentivized to um, give bad medicine and incentivized if people died in their hospital? Up until this point in time, it was, uh, for example, Uh, If a hospital, if somebody went in with pneumonia or they went in with a stroke or if they went in with congestive heart failure and they uh, bounced back into the hospital within a certain period of time, the hospitals lost money. In this case, people could show up in the hospital, they could be in the emergency room and they would be told, oh, uh, here, you do this. And uh, when your lips start turning blue, then come back in and then we can uh, do something uh, for you. Uh, and then once they were through the doors, then again, incentivized, given bonus money. Uh, it, it's just a sad, sick uh, situation uh, when we think of that uh, through the medicines that were given, especially remdesivir. Uh, and then uh, if you went to the ICU, if you went put on a ventilator, and then if you died, as I've said, uh, that was the hospital. You were the hospital's golden cow uh, when it came to that because they got max dollars for that. And uh, some hospital, I mean, well over $100,000 just uh, in bonus money for that type of a situation. Yeah, and we've Perfect. done entire shows on that. Uh, we did one with yep. uh, Dr. Brian Artis, I think, on mm-hmm. December 7th. Um, yeah. And uh, I... If we had, if time allowed, I could tell you my story. Uh, my my father-in-law, I believe, was one of the victims of that, and he passed away um, at the end of uh, 2020. But uh, it was uh, it was a nightmare. Uh, families are not allowed to to see the patients. Um, the only reason I was allowed up to the hospital after he was in there for a week was using my clergy credentials. Um, but his own kids weren't allowed up there. Um, and, uh, he walked himself into the emergency room with pneumonia and five days later, they wheeled him out in a wheelchair on a rainy, cold night in December and just left him. And, um, I had to literally lift him in the van to get him, get him back home. And, uh, two weeks later he was gone. So... But if I had known then what I know now, he never would have gone into that emergency room that night because we had zero control, zero say about anything. And the hospital was absolutely, totally confused on a daily basis about his whole case. So anyway. Yeah. So, um, 
So to jump kind of what you were talking about if uh, in going forward. So if, again, you start getting ill, and uh, then what you want to do is, again, you go to the treatment version of it, and that's where you really double up on things uh, as with the uh, treatment protocol. They're on level two uh, where you double up on pretty much everything that's, that's there, adding on the aspirin. Uh, because again, it's a thromboembolic illness. So we want to uh, make sure that uh, anticoagulation is on board. And then if things go further downhill, then that's when we get into the, the others are all prescription medicines, but, uh, and it's not, you need all of them. The, my protocol just basically outlines all of the options that are out there uh, from that standpoint. Now, I know it's kind of, uh, what I, I get a lot, it's like, well, right now it's like things have just uh, shut down and what are we, we don't have anything much going on as far as COVID. It is still out there and it's going to be out there in cases here and there. Um, the other important thing that I will say that I have learned myself being out here on the front lines with this whole situation is this protocol can work for any virus um, and you have your immune system optimized, it will work for any virus. So just, it doesn't mean, well, if I'm not dealing with COVID or I'm not confronted with COVID, then, uh, you know, I can just let these, these go. No, what we've learned from this, uh, which is a big take home is get on these supplements, the big five. I take them on a daily basis and I will take them on a daily basis from here on out. Uh, because I know that that's uh, optimizing the immune system. And kind of the other uh, important thing, and uh, I know that uh, we had uh, kind of uh, talked about that, and we can talk about that a little bit later, is, you know, who's the setup for it and how do we deal with those different things? Uh, because uh, that is also important. But finding a physician and I always say that I've told this to, to friends and I say, you share with anybody, number one, you be prepared. And by being prepared, if you know of somebody who is who you will treat you, that's what you want to find out first. So you go to your doctor and say, if I get COVID, will you treat me with such and such and such and such? If they say no, then you better be looking somewhere else or you better be finding another source to have things around so that you can then start working with them when it's appropriate. So you actually treat people at home, right? Am, am yes. I correct? Yes, I do. Okay, good. Um, and um, for those of you, if you want to go uh, again, put a plug in for the County Before Country Talks, at that, my specific topic was um, building uh, Christian medical structures and basically being able to do everything in a home outpatient setting and up to even with some high flow oxygen, uh, the group of physicians that we are working with, uh, that I'm working with, we actually will have a clinic up and running soon um, that will have that capability to do even high flow oxygen, stay for a couple of days, be able to do infusions and things like that. But absolutely, I, I would treat very aggressively at home with, uh, again, oxygen concentrators, CPAP machines, 
you can get high levels of oxygen in that way and be done totally at home. And then also uh, working with some of the uh, local uh, infusion centers or wellness clinics who will do infusion of high dose ascorbic acid, vitamin D, zinc, uh, steroids. And that's just a once a day thing. So it's easy to be done. And then again, all of that uh, being done really without necessarily half having to see the patient. Um, I, I personally feel very comfortable treating it. Uh, I feel like after 800 plus cases that it's uh, kind of a, uh, a standard that you can work with knowing patients, knowing their comorbid conditions, which again is very important as to how aggressive we get with it, being able to use nebulizing, tr nebulizer treatments, being able to use steroids. Uh, and again, with the ivermectin, the, the um, hydroxychloroquine, fluvoxamine, uh, for the viral part of it, and then anticoagulants, all of that can be done in a, uh, a home setting. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm guessing you're not, you're not uh, raking in 100, 100 grand per patient either, are you? <laughs> so. No, I or, am not, but that's okay. <laughs> what, what are some of the, uh, the comorbidities that uh, uh, make people more susceptible to this? Well, number one, and again, we knew this very early on, one of the biggest comorbidities was age. And so anyone over the age of 70 was a setup. Well, why is that? It's very simple. Their immune system, as we get older, our immune system goes down. And so uh, they were very susceptible to that. And so when inflammation goes wild in those individuals, they also do not have the, the resilience. They don't have... Uh, their organs don't have the, the uh, backup to be able to sustain uh, an onslaught of inflammation. So we knew very early on the elderly were a big, uh, a, a big target of this. But nonetheless, um, I have treated 90-year-old pluses and successfully because, again, they could be treated just as effectively with early treatment as anybody else who is younger. Uh, so then the other comorbidities, and I know sometimes I become the big bad ogre when, it, when, it's, when I talk about this, but basically obesity is a huge comorbidity. Uh, and then the other ones, diabetes, high blood pressure, cardiovascular disease, uh, immune compromise, and lung disease. And then the other one, which actually um, came out of so Southeast Asia, where they really came out with the studies, and that is low vitamin D. Those who have low vitamin D are also very highly susceptible to it. So those were the biggest comorbidities um, that uh, we could see. But again, in spite of all of those things, they're very treatable. And with early treatment, 100% success. Well, and uh, and we take that top five on your list there every day, um, and um, the the other one that I will put a plug in, which again, and this is one that as a society, um, biggest things we can do: eat right 
whole food, seven to nine servings of your vegetables and fruits every day, um, cutting down on the, on the sugars and the processed foods and exercising 30 minutes, five days a week, get out there, be active. And that alone, uh, because all of those work at decreasing inflammation and increasing the uh, fitness of the body and also uh, increasing the immune system's function in the body as well. So, so those two, those are also in the lifestyle side of things, extremely important. You know, Dr. Donaldson, as you were going through the comorbidity uh, list there, one thing that struck me is you mentioned the older people. And what really bugs me is it seems nowadays so many older people are on so many prescription drugs. Um, I know elderly people that are taking 15, 16 prescription drugs a day, several times a day. You know, my grandparents never took anything and they live forever, you know. <laughs> nowadays, it, and, and every election cycle, they bring up the same thing. Oh, the, the seniors are going to have to choose between food or their drugs. You know, I think we have a drug problem in America, don't we? Yes, we do. And again, we can kind of go into that side of it, that that is kind of the intent of it in a lot of cases. Um, we chase side effects of medicines with medicine. or um, because we don't take care of ourselves and, and we developed with, we developed the blood pressure issues, the, the cardiovascular issues, the uh, diabetes and organ dysfunction, endocrine dysfunction, uh, all of those things are a huge uh, part of the drug companies being able to have a heyday because now we have a cure for everything. And it's one of the crazy things that I would, I'll occasionally have a patient who will come in and say, oh, you know what, I want to do this. I want to eat like this. I want to not do this. And I want to be able to have this lifestyle. So give me the medicine that'll cover my lifestyle. And uh, then I'll, you know, I'm good with that. Well, that obviously is, is uh, not the way that we go through things. And, and that is not the approach that we need to take, but rather we need to take the approach of how does my lifestyle, how can my lifestyle keep me off the medicines? How can my lifestyle keep me from having that uh, need for medicines to control whatever it is that, that I've got? And it's very, again, very preventable. Most of these things are preventable with lifestyle. And that's one of my biggest proponents, again, when we, with what I do and the prevention and wellness is we focus on lifestyle one and lifestyle two. And then supplements. Supplements can play a great role uh, in this. I do not uh, just unload boatloads of supplements on people either, uh, but those who have scientific back, you know, basis for them being effective and what they do. So again, medicines we consider are drugs. That's how we look at it. And they are poisons. Uh, and so we have to look at them that way because they do have side effects. Um, now, in some cases, we need them. Uh, sometimes we need them to beat our genetics. But that's, uh, for the most part, though, that we use as a last resort. 
Yeah, I, I you know, I, I've got to believe that if you're taking 15 or 16 RX uh, drugs a day, that's got to uh, be detrimental to your immune system to begin with. So there's there's your co- comorbidity right there. But anyway, I wanted to get into something else here. Uh, Spencer, if you have the, um, uh, the video with uh, Dr. Brian Artis, this is just a very short clip. Um, and Dr. Donaldson, maybe you can introduce this. Um, I just got this minutes before the show, but we've had Dr. Artis on this show before. Um, and he's talking about remdesivir, which is, uh, well, let's, let's watch. Remdesivir is proven to kill lives. I said since May 2020, remdesivir will result with at least 30% deaths of everyone who receives that drug in a hospital for five to 10 days. I got Thomas Renz to pull the CMS data. You know, for the state of New York, I decided to run it in New York. I wanted to know Medicare-aged patients. What's the percentage of death of those who received remdesivir for its five-day protocol? 26.9% of them died. And do you know right now that remdesivir, as of October 2020, was found by the Cardiovascular Toxicology Journal that it actually causes death of heart cells and is cardiotoxic and can lead to cardiac arrest? That was in October. December 16th, your FDA, I'm sorry, your NIH with Anthony Fauci there, decided to update now all guidelines for treatment drugs allowed and approved for COVID-19 Americans. Guess what's the only listed drug FDA approved for hospitalized Americans? Remdesivir. When it is published by the World Health Organization to cause increased acute kidney failure compared to all other drugs being used in the world when treating COVID-19. And that was published in April of last year. So you have kidney failure, liver failure, now heart failure being caused by remdesivir, published to do so. Two months later, your NIH, the FDA, still sits back and goes, this is the only approved drug for hospitalized COVID-19 patients. You know what's more disgusting? January 21st of this year, the FDA extended an emergency use authorization and said there's now only one authorized medication that can be pumped into the veins of all newborns in this country to 18-year-old pediatric age-ranged children, starting with seven-pound newborns. Guess what the only authorized drug to treat COVID-19 children is now? In hospitals and outside, remdesivir. Yes, when he was on with us December 7th, um, there were several uh, treatment alternatives, although the doctors only knew about remdesivir because the hospital systems, uh, as I understand it, receive a $3,200 bonus if they administer that. So this should raise some eyebrows, folks. I don't know if you're paying attention here. Doc, what do you think? Yes, and when you piggyback onto that, uh, the understanding that if, I mean, even if we give them any possible positive, remdesivir only is effective if it is given within the first three to five days. Now, what hospitalized patient is walking through the doors of the hospital within that period of time? I can tell you zero, zero. And so therefore, yes, as he was saying, um, I had also uh, seen a study. I, I 
I can't remember exactly, but what they did to kind of piggyback on what he was saying, uh, where they can actually do uh, viral loads on patients who come into the hospital. They divided up. I do not know what, I can't remember what the cutoff was, but they did a high viral load, low viral load. And so uh, what they did was they saw, okay, all of them were given remdesivir. Those who had a high viral load uh, was given remdesivir, those who had a low viral load. Those who had a high viral load and they were given remdesivir, their mortality rate was 86%. Those who had a low viral load was down where the average was that, that uh, Dr. Arters quoted at the 26%. So across the board, but if you went in there and you had a high viral load, so if you were a sicker and they gave you remdesivir, your odds, just by saying no to remdesivir, you increased your odds of getting out of the hospital by at least 50%, and in some cases, uh, more than that. So that was that's even more uh, acute. And the reason for the, the five dose, he talked about the five dose. Uh, I have spoken to uh, a number of people, and the reason for that is because at the sixth dose, that is when the kidneys really get uh, knocked down. And that is also with the cardiac and with the, the liver. Now, what you have to understand about that, and this is just very quickly, what is happening with COVID? COVID is a lung situation where you're getting fluid buildup. You're having a hard time uh, breathing because of the microclots that's going on in the lungs. So when you knock down the kidneys, when you knock down the cardiac function, when you knock down the liver function, now you increase the congestion on the lungs. And guess what? That's when people then up, oh, need the ventilator. And once you're on the ventilator, the odds of getting off and getting out, uh, we're only, we're down at around 10%. So the whole idea behind remdesivir was actually to make the situation more acute and more toxic and again, why was the mortality rate so high for those who got remdesivir? There's the reason why. Okay. Um, I see that uh, one of the people in our studio audience has a question. Uh, Deanne, you want to come in and talk to yeah. the doc? Hi, Dr. Donaldson. Hello. Um, one question for you, um, and it was something that my son and I both experienced. We had um, the virus. And we were both taking Tylenol, and we were both taking NAC. All of a sudden, our son started noticing that he was getting extremely, extremely nervous. And it seemed to be when he would take the Tylenol. And so he started doing some research online and actually found out that the NAC can be used in emergency rooms to counteract, like, Tylenol overdoses. So... He started doing some checking and he found out that the Tylenol and the NAC he was taking were actually fighting against one another, causing all this nervousness. Can you speak on that? With, with that, and that's kind of an individual thing. So uh, those who tolerate it, those who uh, don't. But the important thing is if you were to pick one over the other, two things to understand is that Tylenol generally People will take it for the muscle aches. People will take it to bring the fever down. I totally understand that fevers are not comfortable in an adult. We just don't like fevers. We don't tolerate it well. But 
fevers are extremely important in keeping the virus from replicating. So um, if I were to, to pick and choose, if that, and I ha was having issues between taking the two, I would take the NAC. And I can tell you that, again, having been through uh, at least the, the cold part of it, I have had contact with it. I've had enough contact with it. Um, I have antibodies myself. But for myself, I would stay away from the Tylenol for that reason. And I would actually increase the NAC because the NAC is also uh, very effective for the respiratory system. And that's really what you want to uh, get the benefit out of in this situation. So uh, yes, Tylenol is something that we use for those things. But if, if push comes to shove, I will tell patients, take the NAC and ditch the Tylenol. Well, I can vouch for that because when I had it, I had it for a total of three days that I know of. And um, I was so sick in bed, I couldn't get out of bed. I couldn't even lift my head up to drink a cup of soup. And, um, but I slept and I sweat so bad that the, the bed was drenched after I woke up after a few hours. We had to change the sheets, start over again, and I, I drenched me. <laughs> I never sweat so much in my life, but, you know, it, it was very short-lived for me. It, it didn't last long at all. Yeah. So, anyone else out there you have a question? That was your chance. Okay, I'd like to show one more video here with uh, Attorney Thomas Renz. Um, and this is, uh, this speaks more to the, uh, issue with the jab, which I, I want to make sure we get in. We're down to about 10 minutes here. So the, the release of the Pfizer documents just a few days ago, we saw that the actual list of adverse events of serious interest side effects that they were looking at was something like six pages, single space, small font. I mean, the, the list was hundreds of things that they were looking at. Uh, which makes sense given that this is a new category of drug. By the way, uh, they changed the definition of vaccine so that they could make the, call these vaccines. Uh, we have Pfizer and Moderna documents. I can show you, take a look at the SEC filings, acknowledging that mRNA is a gene therapy. So that, to me, that, that conversation is laid to rest. Pfizer and Moderna have both admitted openly in federal filings that mRNA technology is gene therapy. So, you know, this, that makes it so that these are a new category of drugs. So if you're wondering why so many side effects are possible, it's because it's an untested category of drug. We don't have the 10 to 15 year development cycle you'd normally have, so they don't know what's going to happen. What's turned out to happen is a, uh, a nightmare. Uh, Dr. Donaldson, what would you say to people who had taken the jab um, unknowingly um, and now they're experiencing adverse side effects. What, 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 if anything, can they do? Number one, all hope is not lost. I'd like, I'd like to emphasize that. If we go back, very quickly go back to understand what is going on with the jab, and this is where it goes back to the difference between the virus and the spike protein. Very quickly, what the mRNA and the DNA the mRNA, Moderna and Pfizer, the DNA versions of it with J&J &J and with um, AstraZeneca, 
basically what they do is they go in, uh, the mRNA goes in to the DNA through the nanolipoparticles, um, and they go into the cell, they hijack our DNA, so that's why it is genetic therapy. They hijack our DNA. Our DNA is then uh, sends the blueprint out to the rest of the cell to produce spike protein rather than what it would normally be producing. And then the spike protein is produced. Uh, with the DNA version of them, basically the DNA goes in and it goes directly to our manufacturing parts and basically has our cells produce, again, spike protein. So they both come out with the same end product, and that is producing the spike protein. That's why it's very important to understand that the spike protein is the problem. It is not the virus. And so all of the adverse uh, effects from the production of the spike protein can happen with the vaccine. The big difference is because it goes in there and it hijacks our cells, it continues and at a much higher level produces the uh, spike protein than what a, the uh, uh, version from the virus itself would produce in our bodies. So the levels are extremely high of producing spike protein. That, that, that goes, it attaches onto other, into other organs, it goes into our um, glands, it goes into uh, different areas, and that's where the real problem comes, because then the autoimmunity, so we don't know, as Dr. Wren said, we don't know going forward where the problem is, uh, or what's going to happen uh, down the road. So it's understanding that the spike protein is produced, so every time that, uh, that with the jab, you are causing your body to produce the spike protein. So what can we do about it? And that's where um, what I like to say is a couple of things. One is that you can actually, there's blood work that you can do to look at where you stand, either having had the jab or even having had the illness itself. Um, and I've, uh, I have that uh, out there. Also, the other thing that we, that's very important is actually a detox protocol, which for me, um, I have been working with, with, uh, with patients and it's the best right now that we can do. I try to keep it updated. Again, supplements. But very interestingly uh, is that even in these situations to go back and work with maybe a low dose of ivermectin for a longer period of time or fluvoxamine, which and both of those, it's because they cross the blood-brain barrier and go into neuro, neural cells that, it is, that they can be effective um, uh, with that. And so uh, it's very important. But there again, the, the, uh, what you have up there with the, the supplements, um, there are a few changes, some, uh, a few additional things uh, that uh, you can work with uh, for that. But again, these are detoxifying agents, supplements that you can work with. You want to work with them for a minimum, minimum of one to two months and maybe even longer if, if need be. Uh, but again, that's uh, really the best that we can do. And because we don't know down the road what's going to happen uh, with these individuals. Um, and so that's really the key. And so to kind of jump in, I, I said to Rob uh, before, to jump into the whole jab with children. This is extremely, extremely, extremely important. 
And so uh, based on this, every single time a jab goes into a child, they are compromised in some way. Now, it may not be obvious. It's like, well, I took the jab, or even some adults say, well, I took the jab. I didn't have any problem. Well, not that you can observe and not that you may feel, uh, but everyone is compromised. The, the immune system is compromised. They've done studies looking at that as well. Every single time you take a jab, your immune system is compromised further from something else coming down the road later on. And that can be a big concern. But especially with the children, there's really only three um, things that you need to know. One is that there has been no child under the age of 19 that's died from COVID. So as Dr. Artis was pointing out that remdesivir to be given to a child who has COVID, there's no reason for it. They don't die from it. And so therefore, uh, there is absolutely no reason to be giving them a jab. When, as I say to patients and others, I said, it only takes one thing. When I did my fractions and I started learning fractions when I was in uh, end of grade school, if you put zero in the denominator, what is the benefit on the numerator? There is zero benefit whatsoever. And so this is kind of where I, I will sometimes offend some Christians who have had their children vaccinated, or I have, um, unfortunately, uh, no cr Christian pharmacists who will give the jab, who are giving the jab to children. And I'm sorry, but that is absolutely unconscionable. Uh, and when we look at that, uh, to take it to a societal level, there's only one time uh, whenever, uh, and I shouldn't say one time, but only societies who are pagan societies ever, ever sacrifice the well-being or life of a child for the well-being of the adult. Because if you hear, oh, well, we do it for protecting grandma or grandpa or mom or dad or whoever. So therefore, that is not uh, a uh, situation. And again, uh, Jesus protected the children. That's the other one where I go to. Look, we are Christians. We protect our children, even if it means that we die. That's what, you know, we die for our children. Um, Amen. We, we don't... We don't sacrifice our children's well-being or their life to protect us. Never. That is only pagan societies that do that. And so it is extremely important to uh, understand that. And like I say, I step on toes whenever I make those statements. But again, I really think that as a church, we need to be preaching that. We need to be teaching that. We need to get that word out there. And so allowing some education just with those three things as far as not to be argumentative, but rather just reasons as to why we should not give it to our children in any circumstance whatsoever. Right. Uh, Harry had a question for us before we run short of time here. Harry? Actually, two questions. One's a yes, no, and the other maybe <laughs> not. You know, once you've had... This COVID, can you get it again? That's the yes, no. But the other question, you know, there's a lot of information coming out about these nanoparticles that are in in the jab. What's this? What's the story with them? And is it as scary as they say? Because it's a real nightmare from what they're putting out there. To answer the first question, maybe. 
So there again, how do you like that for a yes, no? It really depends. At the beginning, we thought that once you had, if you got the original COVID, you could not get COVID again. When the Omicron version came along, yes, you could get it again. So, But it was simply a just a bad cold. And that was pretty much it. So that's the answer to the first one. So yes, no, you cannot get an earlier version. Once you have the Omicron, you can't get an earlier version with that. As far as the nanoparticles, what we understand, and this goes to Dr. Robert Malone, who developed the whole platform, the nanoparticles actually go into the system and they thought, oh, well, the nanoparticles will keep it where the shot is given, where the jab's given, and then your body comes along, forms antibodies to it, it manufactures the, the uh, spike protein there. Very quickly, within hours, those nanoparticles were traveling to specifically three main areas. They traveled to the ovaries in women, they traveled to bone marrow, and it traveled to the spleen. And so that was very important. So that's where the danger lies with it. And that's why, um, again, you could go into whole other areas with the adverse reaction, but it's why we are seeing what we are seeing as well, is because, again, uh, with the... any body system that you studied when you were taking biology and anatomy in high school or whatever, I have seen adverse reactions in it, and adverse reactions are known to occur in it. Uh, and it's a combination of things. There's also you can get into the whole graphene oxide uh, that's also in the in the uh, um, jabs as well. But the nanoparticles, it's because they travel and then they attach into organ systems and glandulars and glandular tissue. And it crosses also the blood-brain barrier, so it goes into uh, causing neurocognitive uh, decline as well. And I've seen that. And that's a very sad one uh, where we're going with that. Autoimmunity then becomes an issue down the road. Uh, We could get into a whole lot of areas with that. Uh, But... Well, folks, we are out of time. We actually ran out of time about two minutes ago. So I I hate to cut us short, but I hope this was uh, helpful and informative for you. If it was, please share this program on your social media platforms and email and and share it around. Uh, We will do our best to get the uh, information and uh, Dr. Donaldson's notes in our show notes at WCNTV.net once we're posted there. Uh, You can also find us on rumble.com. And that's it for today. Thank you for being here, and we'll see you next week. God bless. 